the Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 17 with Pastor John King. Today, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. We're starting Daniel chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 1 through 17. Daniel 6, 1 through 17. Now last week, we saw Daniel being summoned out of retirement to interpret the famous words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Peres written on the wall by the finger of God. Now, apart from the literal meaning, a mina, a mina, a shekel, and two halves, this was interpreted to mean that the impetuous and prideful prince named Belshazzar has been evaluated. His kingdom days are now numbered by God. His character was weighed and found wanting. And so the kingdom on this very day would be divided in half between the Medes and the Persians. We remember the last two verses from chapter 5. It said, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. He was taken out. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Again, proving that God is sovereign. And when you look at the world events today, and the people that the news media put up, Okay, keep in mind that God is fully aware and he raises up and he takes down and he will take down the prideful and he's fully capable of doing that. Now this week, Daniel is back in the middle of things, but he's under a new leadership. He has outlived Nebuchadnezzar and four successive Babylonian rulers after Nebuchadnezzar. And the time of the 70 year Jewish exile is near its end. Today we'll examine the events that lead up to a very famous Bible story that maybe you grew up with in Sunday school. That was of Daniel being cast into the lion's den. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask, Lord God, that you would go before us now as we study your word. And Lord, our hearts cannot be... uh, possibly taken away from the events of the world around us. But Lord, give us a chance now to see through your word how you work sovereignly. And know that you are on the throne and that you are in charge of all things. And all nations that will rise and fall do it under your sovereign control. And so Lord, help us to take away from today's lesson things that will strengthen our faith that will encourage us to speak and share the gospel to a lost and dying world around us. And we pray this now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. And I'm not going to read the entire 17 verses up front. I'm just going to go through it sequentially. So today we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. This is what's called, uh, very obviously when we get to it, you'll see that it's called a jealous conspiracy. A jealous conspiracy. So verses 1 through 5 of Daniel, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps 
because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So notice in verse 1 that it pleased Darius. In other words, this new king had decided that he would appoint these leaders as part of his takeover strategy. You know, when a nation falls and another regime comes in. And you see this word used several times, satraps. These are what you would call viceroys or provincial rulers in the Babylonian and Persian empires. Several provinces, they were kind of over provinces. There would be like a, a state governor, if you would, will. And they would, they would be over the whole kingdom. And the reason why they were so important and they had to be in place for this new king was because they were responsible for security, you know, uh, other kingdoms possibly coming in. Uh, or people rebelling against the leadership, and most importantly probably would be tax collection. That's right, tax collection. It's important uh, then, and it's very important now. <laughs> How governments function is through the giving of taxes or the taking of tribute or taxes. A quick note, if you're a historian and you study world history, we need to remember, uh, Warren Wiersbe makes a great note, he says, Darius the Mede, who we're talking about here, must not be confused with Darius the First, another uh, historic figure who actually ruled Persia from 522 to 486, and during whose reign the temple was restored by the Jewish remnant at Jerusalem. Darius the Mede was probably the name or title of the man that King Cyrus appointed ruler over the city of Babylon. So we're going to see Cyrus come into the picture later in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. But until he himself, Cyrus, came and took charge, or it may have been the title that Cyrus himself took when he took reign. He may have decided to change titles. They don't know. But we know this about King Cyrus. King Cyrus ruled the Persian Empire from 539 to 530 B.C., and he was succeeded by a, a king named Cambyses. So a little side note, if you're, if you're double-checking the biblical account of history with the, the world history itself. Okay, verse 2, and over these there were three governors of whom Daniel was one. So you had three uh, main governors that were in charge of these 120 satraps. And one of those was Daniel himself, the aged Daniel, the one who had been an advisor to many of the kings, who had come out of retirement to interpret the words that we read last week, the handwriting on the wall. King James Version calls these governors presidents, if you have a King James. And it says, so that the king would suffer no loss. The king would suffer no loss. Well, what are we talking about? Well, again, we're referring to financial loss, the loss of tax revenue, and security, the potential loss of territory or personnel. Verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. 
So apparently Daniel had a great political skill to go along with his ability to interpret dreams. And he was a very seasoned administrator. And this is where the problem for Daniel starts to come in. Notice it says he distinguished himself, King James says preferred, by the leaders. In other words, he's preferred by the king. And it's not because Daniel was boasting, but by his honesty and work ethic. You would think, you know, uh, by simply being honest and having a good work ethic, he stood out among the officials. That says something, doesn't it? And because of his character, he made them look bad. Notice it says he had an excellent spirit. Again, this is honesty and wisdom, and we've seen this several times about his character, and it was always attributed to God working in his life. You know, when somebody, when somebody says, you know, I really see the Lord working in your life, what they're referring to is the fact that you're honest, that you show godly wisdom, that you're humble, that you're loving and kind. That's what they're referring to of God working in your life. And that, that, in Daniel's case, we could say he had an excellent spirit in that manner. And so the king, seeing this in Daniel, he gave thought to setting him over the entire realm. He, he was thinking about putting Daniel in charge of everything. Well, this didn't sit well, did it? It triggered what came next. In verse 4, it says, So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Now, Darius would have applied a policy of retaining as many conquered leaders and officials into positions of influence and power to retain order in the government and among the people. You know, he, most people that take over, and you know, we're, here we are in this crazy world we're living in right now. We've got a, a madman in Russia... <laughs> wanting to plow through a sovereign nation. And, uh, you know, you don't... In this case, you look at the ancient... Uh, the, the way people were conquered back then, I suppose, and it wasn't always this way, but in this case, he was going to use as many of the people that were from the Babylonian Empire to continue to work, to, to have their government jobs, so that he wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, you know, because they came and they, they sieged him. Anyway... These 120 uh, government leaders, they didn't appreciate the fact that he wanted to put Daniel in charge and, and to be ahead of all of them. And so it, since it didn't sit well, you know, out came the long knives, if you will, towards Daniel. Again, Daniel, Darius wanted Daniel to be in charge because he was an honest and trustworthy person. And the rest of these governors and satraps must have been corrupted by skimming the tax revenue for personal gain. You know, in a, in a lot of nations where you don't have a, a nation of laws or a secular society, the government officials, whoever they may be, are all on the take. Okay, if you've ever been to certain places where, you know, you have to pay your way through to get across the border and whatnot, or to get out of jail, or, not, or avoid going to jail. But notice that they could not find a charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault in him. What Darius knew about Daniel was proved by his enemies. They couldn't find a charge. They couldn't find a, uh, any corruption. They couldn't see where he was neglect or remiss in his duties because he was 
faithful. He was trustworthy. In fact, Daniel is so popular uh, among the Judaic religion. One uh, writer says this, Daniel is upheld as the model of virtue among the Jewish sages. His character served as the supreme example of fidelity and excellence for exiled Jews or those living under foreign governments. Further, his life functioned as a model of how to preserve Torah righteousness while in a foreign country. As a result, the book of Daniel was copied on a large scale in the Second Temple period and has a widespread presence in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. The community there viewed itself separate from mainstream Judaism, and they considered, which they considered corrupt in need of renovation. And we know in Jesus' time when he confronted the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were very corrupt at that time. But Daniel's, uh, you know, his, his model of virtue is respected among many, not just in Christianity, but uh, especially in Judaism. But notice in verse 5 it says, Then these men, they said it out loud. They said, We shall not find a charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. We know he's faithful for that, so we'll turn his religion against him. We're going to have to make his religion illegal, at least temporarily, is what they said. Now, thinking about these passages, you might want to ask the question, well, was Daniel perfectly sinless? And the answer is, of course not. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So Daniel wasn't sinless. But Daniel, two Old Testament characters stand out among the many who God used in the Old Testament, and that's Joseph and Daniel. Remember Joseph in Egypt with Potiphar's wife and under the Pharaoh. Why did they stand out? Why did Joseph and Daniel stand out? Because while the Bible is very revealing about the shortcomings of Abraham and Moses and David and so on, God chooses not to expose the sin of Joseph and Daniel. He chooses not to highlight that. Because one of the main themes and several themes of the stories is boldness, courage, and character to go along with the sovereignty of God. Also, there is no evidence that Daniel was ever acting self-righteous. He simply remains humble and steadfast under the weight of persecution. And so we can take an example from Joseph's character, Daniel's character as well, Daniel's who we're talking about. Look at Philippians 1.27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So while we don't, we don't bow down to the opinions of the world and men, we want to have a good reputation in conduct, in our character. We want to have a good reputation about how we approach work, our honesty, how we deal business-wise and such, how we, you know, where we pay our taxes. We don't want to try to cheat and cut corners. But you know, uh, we know it's all too well, as, as one writer put it this way, it isn't always the case that the honest employee 
gets the promotion while his enemies are judged. We know that's not always the case. Joseph and Daniel were both promoted by pagan rulers. But he says, uh, he says I have a friend who was fired because he worked too hard. Apparently, his Christian integrity and his diligent work showed up the laziness of the other workers, so the foreman found reason to dismiss him. However, it's better to maintain your integrity and testimony than to sacrifice them just to keep your job. If we put the Lord first, he'll care for us, even if we don't get the promotion. Many a faithful Christian has been bypassed for promotion or a salary increase just because somebody higher up didn't like them. But the workers' rewards will one day come from the hand of the Lord. Keep that in mind, that our reward is going to come eventually from the hand of the Lord, whether it's in this life or in heaven itself. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added up to you when you consider worldly success. Next we go in, we see that these uh, leaders, these rulers, uh, satraps and governors, are going to set the trap for Daniel. They've already, you know, you know that they've already conspired. They already have a beef with Daniel about his, what he's done. He's making them look bad because he's, he's, you know, he's working harder than them. And Daniel 6, verses 6 and 9, it says, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. <laughs> All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm degree, decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, I'm going to put a 30-day moratorium on prayer to a god, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Verse 8, now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Didn't give much thought to it, did he? So here they are. They've, they've, uh, they've gathered together. They've, they've thronged. They've, they've all, you know, 120 of them minus one, 119 of them, uh, excuse me, 123, 122 of them have arrived at the king's palace and they've said, oh, King Darius, live forever. You know, the standard salutation, which is drenched in flattery. And all the governors of the kingdom, administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted. They lied. They claim that all of them have consulted. All of them have gotten together. Well, the truth is, all except Daniel. So right away, they come in with this big lie. And remember, Daniel was the chief administrator, and he wasn't even invited to the meeting. He, he didn't get the memo, obviously. And so they said to the king, well, you, you, know, you need a royal statute. You need an edict with the power of the king behind it to have a binding effect, a firm decree, that whoever petitions any god for the next 30 days, except for you, O king, they can come to you, they can treat you like a god, shall be cast into the den of lions. 30 days, very short period of time. This was a veiled plan to get Daniel because they knew that Daniel, remember, by his, his religion, they knew they could, he would be faithful to it. And these people had many gods, so you weren't going to stop them. They had temples on every street corner to different gods and deities. 
And so if they could shut them down for 30 days, you know, to, to flatten the curve, they can, uh, they can, oh, did I say, in any event, if we can stop this, you know, worshiping in temples for 30 days, they know that they can get what they need. They know that they can catch Daniel, and sure enough. So they, they were actually trying to make their actions seem a little bit less conspicuous, if you will. But anybody who violates this decree, guess what happens to you? You're cast into a den of lions. Another, wouldn't you know it, another form of cruel punishment. We had the furnace, right? They cast you into a furnace. That was the, uh, the three, Daniel's three companions. Now they have this other cruel way of killing you, and that's the den of lions. And, you know, just because we live in a modern society doesn't mean that there's not a extremely cruel forms of punishment and torture that goes on to this very day. And uh, what's going on right now, and we see what's going on in world events, and we're, now the world's being, being re-educated, if you will, about the... the uh, I'm going to go off on a little rabbit trail. Hopefully the world's getting re-educated once again about the, the ills of communism. You know, communism and the secular humanist governments are responsible for an estimated 150 million deaths over the past 100 years. And so, you know, maybe that's coming back into the spotlight when you look at these people who are so valiantly trying to defend their nation. And many of them have tasted democracy, but they've also tasted Christianity too. Because a godless state that outlaws Christianity, now they've, they've let these people. And so we certainly need to continue to pray for that nation and all the nations in Eastern Europe and our nation as well. But in this form of cruel punishment, Lions were placed in a large pit, which was then sealed with a rock, and several lions with very infrequent meals, because eventually they probably start to eat themselves, makes this a very brutal form of death, but very effective form of execution. So that was the, the threat. So verse 8, they say, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing, so that it cannot be changed according to the law. So the pressure mounts upon this king. And they even say, uh, that it, which does not alter. A written legal decree was considered permanent or unalterable. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And verse 9, though, it says, Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Boom, that's it. Didn't give much forethought, did he? And he would regret that. But he was apparently more willing to appease the crowd and maintain peace rather than weigh the matter carefully. The things that he was impressed with in Daniel's character, he didn't have the guts to exercise himself. Now, thinking about this, when the officials who conspired against Daniel failed to come up with any evidence of wrongdoing or corruption, they used his dedication and deep commitment to the Lord against him. They knew he was accustomed to faithfully praying towards Jerusalem three times a day. And they were certain that even if this practice was made to be illegal, guess what? Daniel would still honor God. He would honor his commitment to the Lord. You've most likely heard the cliche, if you or I were placed on trial for being a faithful Christian, would you be declared guilty or innocent? What may have seemed like a far-fetched notion, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, has now become much more of a reality in our society, 
People go through, you know, they suffer lawsuits, they suffer harassment, social media attacks. By golly, they do. And they are like to, they're increasingly, all this is being put upon Christian leaders uh, for Christian-owned businesses, schools, ministry organizations, and churches who dare to stand for their biblical convictions and practices. We know what's going on in Canada, where they were, there, there was a unanimous uh, passing by the Canadian uh, par, uh, government, if you will, the, the, the Canadian uh, parliament or whatever they call them, to uh, make it illegal for a pastor to preach from certain parts of the Bible, especially if it dealt with anything with sexual orientation. Like, think of Romans 1, for instance. And it went through unanimously, so that there's a potential that pastors in Canada can be put in jail for what they preach from the Bible. Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 21, 10 and 12. He said, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We're sure seeing that now. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And Paul, later on, warned Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Yes, and listen to this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All. And so sometimes, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question. You know, we, we, are, we have been accustomed to living in a very Christian nation, but that's been really gone. We're in a post-Christian world now. And you know, you, you're going to realize, if you haven't already, that you, you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose relatives over the fact that you, de- you desire to, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Not perfect. Not judging. Not looking down on others. Not a religious practice. But a relationship with Jesus Christ. The kind of relationship that God desires with you and I. A personal relationship. If you desire to live that relationship, you and I will and have suffered persecution. It may be on a very mild scale compared to things in the world, but it's happening. Next we see Daniel's resolve, verses 10 through 13. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he knew that this decree had gone through, he went home. He went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which it does not alter. And so they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. 
Obviously, Daniel remembered being a Jew. He remembered the, uh, one of the first commandments, Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. That still applies, folks. That still applies to us. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down three times a day. Now, Daniel, you know, are we saying that that's what we're supposed to do? No, we're not, not called to do that. We're called to pray, and Jesus gave instructions on how to pray. But keep in mind where Daniel was at that time. He probably recalled King Solomon's temple dedication in 1 Kings 8.35. And also keep in mind that they were in exile. And that reads, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, Lord, and that's why they're in exile, when they pray toward this place, towards Jerusalem and toward the temple, and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. So that's probably you know, one of the reasons why Daniel and other devout Jewish men and women in captivity would do these things. And it says he prayed and gave thanks before his God. In other words, he praised God. He praised God. You know, oftentimes we come to the Lord in prayer and it's all about our needs and our wants and our hurts and our pains. But remember, take time to praise God and give him thanks when you come into prayer. I mean, he's, he knows his days, he thinks probably, you know, without the Lord's intervention, his days are numbered at this point. And what does he do? He praises God. His custom, as usual, since the early days, since before the exile. Okay, so Daniel has, you know, these are his practices, and they knew they could trap them with him. In verse 11, then these men assembled to do what? Well, to spy on him. His windows were wide open. You know, you could see how it was. If you've, uh, if you've ever seen uh, the way these cities were laid out, things were pretty wide open in some cases. And you could see inside people's houses. And it says they assembled. They went as a group in order to have plenty of witnesses. You know, it wasn't just one. They, they brought all, you know, uh, however many to come before the king. And they said, uh, you know, we found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Making supplication, meaning showing favor to God over man. Knowing where his hope comes from. And of course, in verse 12, they went before the king and they spoke concerning his decree. They reminded of him of what he had signed, a 30-day moratorium on prayer. And that they reminded him of the penalty for violating that. And the king had to say it with his own lips. He said, yes, yeah, it's true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. But you already get a hint that he, didn't, he regretted even signing the document. In verse 13, they mention that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah. You can sense the animosity and you can sense the prejudice against Daniel's ethnicity. Anti-Semitism has been around for a very, very long time. Warren Wiersbe said this, apparently these officers didn't know God's covenant with Abraham that promised to bless those who blessed the Jews and to curse those who cursed him. When these men started to attack Daniel, they were asking for God's judgment to be upon them. But they, they blamed him of this. They said, he doesn't have due regard for you. In, in other words, he disrespects and ignores your authority. So they had to make it personal. You know, things really do change when you make it personal. 
logic tends to go out the window. <laughs> so what they were painting him as was a treasonous rebel. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. Because that was the a charge against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, with all that, we know, thinking about those things, we know that you and I, we are to pray for our enemies. And we don't know the entire content of Daniel's prayers to God. We know he gave praise to the Lord. He gave thanks to the Lord. But you could safely say that it would hardly be a stretch to think that he also prayed about his accusers. He brought that before the Lord as well. And he may have prayed to God that they would, maybe God would destroy them. You know, that would, that would remind us of David's petitions to the, to the Lord in the Psalms. But Daniel would also have known the Mosaic law found in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So these things he would know. When we talk about our enemies, Jesus dealt with this explicitly in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, the Jews had drifted off and away from God's truth by this time. And Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, those are very explicit instructions for you and I when we, have, when we realize, you know, this thing about persecution and those who hold things against us. But at the end of the day, we are to please God over man. We know 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is what I call the, the, the man-pleasing verse, the cure for the man-pleasing tendency that we all have. Paul wrote, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. When you, when you find yourself in this place, uh, and this is, a very, this is a very dangerous disease for us pastors, when you find yourself in this place where you're really concerned about pleasing people above God because you want them to like you, we need to remember that the one who judges us is the Lord. He's the one that you need to make happy. That doesn't mean you don't care what people think about you, but it puts it in the right perspective. So Daniel went, he, was, he prayed to the Lord, and you know, it's been said that the most important part of a believer's life is the part that only God sees. You know, it's one thing to be out in public and among one another in fellowship. D.L. Moody, Moody put it this way, character is who you are in the dark, all by yourself. And he, uh, one writer said this, he said, Let's think about this. Most of the world, most of the world begins the day looking toward the world and hoping to get something from it. But the Christian believer looks to the Lord 
and his promises and enters each new day by faith. Outlook determines outcome, and when we look to the Lord for his guidance and help each day, we know that the outcome is in his hands and that we have nothing to fear. Next we see Daniel being cast into the lion's den, verses 14 through 17. This is where faith now becomes costly. Your faith in the Lord becomes costly. It reads, And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king established may be changed. Don't, don't, get it, don't start having second thoughts now. Uh, you've signed a decree. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. He's been cast into the den of lions, sealed. Now we're going to pick up the rest of the story next week, but let's finish out this, these uh, verses. You see, the king, when he heard these words, he was greatly displeased with himself. He finally realized that he's been tricked by his advisors. That this was an innocent man that's being thrown to the lions. In fact, he was so concerned that he was up all night trying to find a way to pardon Daniel. And word got out. And of course, they came as a group because they were determined to see Daniel's demise. Think of the story of Jesus, you know, and, and, and how Pontius Pilate tried to assuage them with, you know, maybe we'll just scourge him. If I scourge him, maybe I see nothing wrong with this man. But they were going to have their way. In fact, they would say, Our, his blood be upon us. A fateful thing to say. But these advisors to the king said, No, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be, may be changed. They were reminding the king that he was restrained from changing course. But they were clearly revealing their true colors. Now as a side note, it is true that the king's decree cannot be revoked, but if you're a Bible student, a Bible scholar, you may have read Esther chapter 8, verses 1-17 through 17 in that story, and we find in the book of Esther that a new decree can be issued to override another one. But his advisors didn't tell him that. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the den of lions. But notice the king spoke to Daniel. Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Interesting. Darius was well aware of what Daniel was known for and that is his faithfulness to God. So even his executioner said, your God's going to deliver you. Some, some think he was being sarcastic. I don't get that impression. Then a stone was brought and laid to the mouth of the den, sealed by the king's 
seal, his signet ring. After Daniel had been thrown into the lion's den, the king had a stone placed over the den's mouth, and then he stamped the stone with the royal seal of his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles. The royal seal indicated that the king's authority stood behind this execution. Therefore, the death of the guilty was unrevocable, couldn't be changed. Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six. When Jesus was laid, he says, So they went, and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, as we'll see next week, the fact that no one would dare to break the king's seal will prove a great miracle. A great miracle. So, as we conclude our service, I just want to leave you with this one simple passage of counting the cost. Luke 14, 27. These are the words of Jesus to all of us who claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. He says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The Lord exhorts you and I to take up that cross Take up Jesus' cross and to walk. Because he says, you can't be my disciple if you won't do that. And so we will constantly, if we, if we say with our mouth, you know, I believe in the Lord Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he will test you. He will test you. He will not allow you to use his name in vain. Okay? He will test you for your claim of being a true follower of Christ. Otherwise, he says, you cannot be my disciple. And that's a challenge for us. That's a challenge for me. You and I need to be reminded of it. We see it in the life of Daniel. And Lord, may you see it in our life too. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Father, we ask that you go before us. And Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would um, put this lesson in our heart, put it in our mind, make it fresh, make it real for how we live our lives as Christians the great example of character and humility and suffering and the willingness to die even for our faith if you call us to do that, Lord. Would you now strengthen us, Father? Would you go before us? Would you help us, Lord, if we're not right with you? Maybe there's something in our relationship with you. Maybe there's somebody at the sound of my voice that's hearing this and knows that he or she doesn't know Jesus in the way Jesus desires. And that's a personal relationship. God is not sitting in some far off place so that he can just throw down thunderbolts and, you know, condemn people to misery or rules that are unbinding. That's not our Lord. Our Lord sent his son Jesus Christ in the flesh to hang upon the cross and to take the sins upon himself, the sins of the world, so that we might have a fresh and new start with God, to be washed by the blood of Jesus and to walk with him in a fresh and a new way. And there isn't a minute that goes by in the life of a person, as long as you're breathing, that you cannot cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I ask for your love and forgiveness. I'm, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I need to be saved from my impending ending of my life because I don't know where my next breath is coming from, Lord. Lord,
unless you provide it. And I know, Lord, that if I die in my sins today, I will be separate from you for all eternity. And Lord, I do not want to do that. I want a relationship with you. And yes, it will be difficult to stand for my faith. It will be difficult to witness in a world that doesn't love you. But Lord, you will stand by my side and you will guide me and you will see us through. You will see me through. So if you, tr- if you are willing to trust that God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross on behalf of your sins and my sins, if you're willing to trust that and receive that free gift of salvation, all you have to do is ask him, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from doing that today? The Lord stands at the door of your heart and and he knocks and he says, if you'll open up, I will come in and fellowship with you. So Lord, we thank you once again for our time together. We ask that you go before us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now let's stand and and read our closing uh, verse for this week. Our closing verse is Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Let's read this together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. My future hangs on this You make preciousness from dust Please don't stop creating me Your blood offers the chance To rewind to innocence Reborn, perfect as a child Your cross, it changes everything There my world begins again with you Oh, your cross is where my hope restarts A second chance is heaven's heart When sin and ugliness collides with redemption's kiss, beauty awakens by her romance. Always inside this mess, I have found forgiveness, mercy as infinite as you. Your cross, it changes everything There my world begins again with you Oh, your cross is where my hope restarts A second chance is heaven's heart 
Countless second chances we've been given at the cross. Countless second chances we've been given at the cross. Fragments of brokenness salvaged by the art of grace you grab life of my home mistakes black skies of my regrets outshone by this kindness new life dawns of my soul your cross it changes everything there my world begins again with you oh your cross it's where my hope restarts a second chance is heaven's heart oh your cross it changes everything there my world begins again with you oh your cross is where my hope restarts a second chance is heaven's heart countless second chances we've been given at the cross countless second chances we've been given at the cross countless second chances we've been given at the cross countless second chances we've been given at the cross God bless you. Have an awesome week. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line.